Well, please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. And this is going to be the account of the triumphal entry. Um, where Matthew explicitly references Zechariah and describes this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem as a fulfillment of uh, what Zechariah is going to be prophesying in our text tonight. Before we read, let's ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And we ask that you would please help us clearly to understand it, help me to um, explain and proclaim it. Uh, faithfully and clearly, we ask you would grant to your people hearts of faith and obedience uh, to receive what you're going to reveal to us in the scriptures. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Amen. Let's now turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 9. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart, and heaped up silver like dust, and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions, and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. 
a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Amen. You can be seated. I want to share with you a a story that comes down to us from the ancient historian Plutarch. Plutarch, uh, he's well known for his so-called parallel lives, these short biographies of famous Greeks and Romans uh, set kind of side by side. So in his life of Alexander the Great, Plutarch writes uh, an anecdote from when Alexander the Great was a young man quite a young man. Philip, his father, was still the king of Macedonia. And King Philip uh, owned this horse that nobody could ride. The horse's name was Bucephalus. You may have heard him. And uh, so Philip was about to get rid of this horse, 
um, when young Alexander said, well, let me try, and he, he managed to mount and ride Bucephalus. And when his father and the other horsemen saw this, they were so impressed that uh, Plutarch says Philip supposedly shed tears of joy and kissed him and said to him, My son, seek thee out a kingdom equal to thyself. Macedonia has not room for thee. In other words, you're, you're meant for greater things. Your, your destiny is, is far beyond just this one little country, Macedonia. And of course, Alexander the Great went on to uh, conquer um, much of the known world of his day, extending Greek rule and Greek culture eastward and southward from Macedonia into far-flung territories, including Egypt. And, of course, to get to Egypt by land from Greece, if you just think about a map, if you wanted to get from Greece to Egypt and you wanted to go by land and not by sea, where do you have to pass through to get there? Well, you have to pass through that little strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea on that eastern shore of the Mediterranean right by the land of Israel. And um, it's pretty interesting to think that it was probably on that famous horse, Bucephalus, that Alexander the Great was riding when he conquered Damascus. Looking at the passage here, Damascus in Syria. When he conquered Tyre and Sidon. And when he conquered Gaza in 332 B.C., um, and, of course, I'm mentioning those specific cities because these are cities surrounding Israel that Zechariah describes here in chapter 9 as cities that are going to be conquered and devastated, even though right now they seem very secure um, and wealthy and proud. We're going to look at this chapter 9 in uh, three parts tonight. First, a coastal calamity, verses 1 through 8. Second, a humble hero, verses 9 and 10. And third, the Savior's sword, verses 11 through 17. So a coastal calamity, a humble hero, and the Savior's sword. And uh, I'm calling these first eight verses a coastal calamity because it focuses mainly, not only, but mainly on uh, some significant cities right along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So... um, most famous of these are Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were famously seafaring cities. Right there along the shore, they sent their um, trading vessels all over the Mediterranean world. And through their trade with other lands, through that seaborne commerce, they became extremely powerful and rich, fabulously wealthy, the envy of the world. And Naturally, then, the envy of Alexander the Great, who would eventually conquer Tyre and Sidon. And actually, Alexander's siege of the city of Tyre was uh, very elaborate, very prolonged. Uh, The main fortress of Tyre was on an island off the shore in the sea, which made it very difficult for an invading army to reach. Uh, But what Alexander did that no one had done before is he built, actually, into the ocean, he built a causeway. He Uh, literally piled up all kinds of stuff in the water, um, including buildings that he had torn down from the mainland. And he stretched this out into the water to get as close to the island city as he could. And anyway, there's a lot more to the story of the Siege of Tyre, but suffice it to say that that Tyre, which prided itself on being this 
ultra-secure, impregnable fortress in the sea was, well, to use Zechariah's words, struck down on the sea, stripped of her possessions, and devoured by fire when Alexander's armies and navy finally prevailed. So you can notice the contrast, then, between the power and the wealth and the apparent security and prosperity of Tyre in verse 3, where you see they've, they've heaped up silver like dust and uh, fine gold like mud. Um, there's this powerful rampart to protect against invasion, but none of it is going to last. Why? Because the Lord is against them. The Lord has an eye verse 1, on mankind in general and on all the tribes of Israel in particular. In other words, God's care for world events is centered on Israel, but it is not limited to Israel. He is exercising his sovereign rule over these surrounding nations with a special regard for his plan concerning his special covenant people. from Tyre and Sidon up to the north of Israel. We can move our attention southward in verse 5 to these other cities that are named Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod. Uh, Gaza, of course, has been in the news a lot recently. And um, if you're familiar with the geography of current events, you've seen the maps. The Gaza Strip is this narrow strip of land uh, right along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, kind of to the southwest of Israel. Today, of course, it's known as the home of the, of the Palestinians. Of course, this, these events are being... Uh, this, this prophecy is taking place long before the rise of Islam um, and all of the events of the past several hundred years. In Old Testament times, Gaza was the home of the Philistines. Uh, there were five main Philistine cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, Ashdod, and then, of course, Gath, which is where Goliath was from. Gath is not mentioned here, but that would, it's the, the fifth that would round out that list. You hear a lot about these places in First and Second Samuel uh, during the time of David and Saul when the Philistines were the kind of big bad at the time. Uh, some of the biggest rivals to Israel, to both Saul and David during that period. And they were kind of perennial enemies of Israel at different, at different times in their history. Well, <coughs> excuse me. Here it's significant that these Philistine cities share something in common with Tyre and Sidon, and that is that they are these coastal cities uh, near the coast, not on the coast, in this coastal region, and they also share something else in common. Alexander the Great conquered Gaza uh, at the same year that he conquered Tyre, 332 B.C., and what Zechariah is showing us is that um, that fall of these two cities was not a mere accident of history. What he's inviting us to do is to think, what is God doing in this history? 
How is this demonstrating this great principle that the Lord has an eye on all mankind in general and on all the tribes of Israel in particular? So as with Tyre, God cuts off the pride of Philistia now. They thought that they were so safe and strong, but their hopes are going to be confounded. And um, notice verse 7 in particular. He says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. Think of uh, when, when your toddler has a, put a marble in his mouth and you're like, no, not on my watch. Get that out of there. You get your finger in there. You get slobber all over. You snatch that marble out before it can go down the hatch, right? Um, God sees the idolatry of this people. Remember, his eye is on these nations. Okay, to be fair, the imagery is not really of a toddler eating a marble. It's more like a wild animal with a piece of its prey, and you snatch it right out of that animal's jaws. The point here is that God is going to stop them in their tracks. He's going to halt that idolatry midstream. Not going to permit it to continue. Um, But it's not only through the fall, the conquest and fall of these cities that the Lord is going to do this. Notice that God's plan here is not 100% destruction, 100% judgment. He uses the language here of a remnant. Now, in the prophets, when you see the language of a remnant, usually, almost always, it's talking about a remnant of the Israelites, a remnant of the people of God. And so it's pretty surprising, pretty striking in verse 7 when the Lord says that it, Philistia, too, shall be a remnant for our God. It says, it shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Uh, the Jebusites were a Gentile people group who lived in Jerusalem before David conquered the city, and it became the city of David, capital of God's people, site of the temple. But um, apparently the Jebusites were not eradicated. We hear about this under the reign of Solomon. They're put to forced labor. Um, And what seems to be suggested here is that some of those Jebusites over time, over the centuries, some of the Jebusites ended up actually being sort of incorporated into the people of God becoming a part of Israel, which was perfectly possible for Gentile peoples to do if they would embrace the God of Israel, enter into the covenant community. Well, Zechariah is now anticipating that similarly, a remnant even of the Philistines, of all people, if you know just a little bit about the Philistines from the Bible, this should surprise you. Philistines? Philistines? A remnant of the Philistines are going to be incorporated into the people of God. The people Goliath came from. It's remarkable. Who would have thought? And so on the one hand, this is evidence of the Lord's conquering power. His supremacy, his hegemony, his power over the Philistines. But on the other hand, you see how this is not only a triumph of God's justice. This is a triumph of God's grace. Ultimately, I, if we were to ask what Zechariah's main point is here, though, I, 
I don't think he's focused um, primarily on that Philistine remnant. Zechariah's focus here is on Israel. This whole first section is good news for Israel. Why? Well, the reason is that the Lord is paving the way for a future. Paving the way for a future when his people are no longer going to be oppressed by these surrounding enemy nations. The Lord is going to defeat their foes. The point here is that the Lord sees. The Lord knows. His eye is on this part of the world and especially on his people. Um, and of course, as uh, the commentary, uh, commentator Mikomsky I've, quoted, uh, I've referenced before, he points out this has been a big theme of this whole book ever since chapter 1. Uh, remember those four horsemen spying out the world um, on God's behalf. Part of the big message of this book is that Israel, you need to know, God is paying attention. God is fully aware. God is acting for your good and his glory on the world stage. He's turning all of these global events to his good purposes for your good and his glory. All right, now, think back with me to the beginning of the sermon. There's something else that actually that McComsky fellow helped me with. You think about Alexander the Great and Bucephalus, that famous charger of his, that majestic horse that he was so famous for taming and riding and riding on his, on his conquests. Imagine Alexander the Great, who would eventually conquer Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, Gaza, etc. Imagine when he did that, imagine him riding triumphantly into those conquered cities, riding you-know-who, Bucephalus, that mighty charger of a horse. Once their walls had been broken through, once what was left of their people had laid down their arms. Alexander the Great, a conquering king, on horseback, surveying this field of victory and establishing his supremacy over a, an utterly subjugated foe. hope you have that image in your mind because I want you now to contrast it. Contrast it with a very different picture that you get in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, just to kind of nip something in the bud. When you hear donkey, uh, you might associate that because of kind of our culture with something that's kind of comical or foolish looking or insulting or something like that. That's not the case at all here. Um, It's not like it was out of bounds for kings to ride on donkeys. Kings absolutely could ride on donkeys, and you see that happen in the Bible. It was not beneath the dignity of a king to ride on a donkey. 
But here's what they wouldn't do. A king wouldn't ride a donkey into battle. If you came into a city as a conqueror, you rode in on a horse, not a donkey. If you rode into a city on a donkey, that meant that you were coming in a time of peace. And see, that is the good news for God's people here. These surrounding nations are going to experience all this turmoil, all this destruction, this conquest. But the Lord is preparing Israel for a time when they are going to have a new king, a king who is going to come to them in peace, a righteous king who is able to provide the salvation that they need during a period of great danger and threats from the outside world. But this king is righteous and having salvation. Um, And this king, moreover, is going to bring a lasting peace to his people, to their land. I will cut off, God says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so this this king is going to bring an end to conflict between Israel and the world around them, bringing this kind of peace Actually, it's not just for Israel, is it? This is a peace that the nations are going to enjoy as well. This is a very expansive vision. Notice how this king's rule is going to stretch beyond what we would typically think of as Israel's historic borders. This is a kind of expansive realm like the one described in Psalm 72. This is a psalm about Solomon. And the prayer there is that the king's, this, that king's dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. If you look back at the history of King Solomon, 1 Kings 4 says that Solomon, in fact, ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates. And by the way, when it says the river here, I'm trying to remember if there's a a capital R um, uh, in the... Yeah, so you see it's a river with the capital R. When you see that, it's talking about the river Euphrates. That is the river of the ancient Near East um, when it's not otherwise named um, up in Mesopotamia. And so Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. That is a far-flung kind of projection of Israelite power to distant places in the ancient world. That's the farthest extent, I believe, of Israel's territory and, and their projected influence in all of their history of all the kings. This is the kind of peak of Israelite power. So this king in Zechariah 9, his rule um, echoes that far-reaching dominion of Solomon. And actually, it exceeds Solomon's dominion because it actually does go to the ends of the earth, from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, now let's think about how the gospel writers use use this passage. Uh, This passage is quoted both by Matthew and John. And it's pretty clearly in the background for Mark and Luke when they record the triumphal entry, too. Um, When Jesus entered Jerusalem in a very public way, escorted by many of his followers, hailing him as the son of David, royal title, um, their expectations were at this peak of excitement as they thought, well, maybe now at last Jesus is going to take the throne. 
maybe now at last Jesus is going to bring in that reign of victory and peace that Zechariah and the other prophets have taught us to look forward to. And um, that was on a Sunday. And you know what happened that very Friday. That same week, that was the day that Jesus was crucified. Laid down his life and he died. And many of those very same followers were, were just absolutely crushed by this. We thought that this was the king that Zechariah told us we were supposed to expect. He literally rode into the city on a donkey and everything, just like Zechariah said he was supposed to do. Now, where is the dominion? Where is the reign? Where is the rule? Where is the peace? And all of those hopes, it seemed, had just evaporated when Jesus died on the cross. Of course, that was because Jesus' followers had not really understood the full extent of what the Lord was preparing them for in this prophecy and many others. Because the king that the Lord promises in this passage is not a king like Alexander the Great. He's not a king like Caesar. He didn't come into Jerusalem that day to confront the Romans and start a rebellion that was going to kick them out of the city. There's a reason that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And it wasn't just to fulfill this prophecy. It's because he was coming to Jerusalem in peace, not as a conqueror. Righteous and having salvation is he, but, but how is he going to bring it? He's going to bring it through humility. He's going to bring it through suffering. He's going to bring it through the cross. That is how Jesus was going to bring that righteousness and salvation to his people. He hadn't come to conquer the world like Alexander the Great did. And frankly, he didn't need to do that because he was, <laughs> he was already the king of the cosmos before he entered into the cosmos and before he lived and died as a man. Jesus had that worldwide dominion from the very beginning as the son of God. The reason he came, the reason he entered Jerusalem was to do much more than merely rule over the world. He came into Jerusalem as part of his mission to provide the way for the free forgiveness of sins for everyone who would trust in his sacrifice for them on the cross and submit to his rule over their lives personally. And that's why it was only through the pathway of the cross that Jesus was going to be able to make his way ultimately to the exalted, far-reaching, universal rule on the throne of heaven that's depicted in verse 10. A rule which now, as the risen and ascended Christ, he enjoys today and at this moment upon the throne of heaven. A rule that extends from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth, to every tribe and tongue and nation without exception. Now, this is a helpful place to lead us then into the last section of Zechariah 9. As we think about what is Jesus doing now? What is Jesus doing now? He is working in the world through his church to advance his kingdom, to further enact his dominion on the earth 
And how is he doing it? What instrument is he using to accomplish that great burning purpose in the world? He's using us. He's using his people. He's using his church as the instruments of his sovereign rule. I think that perspective is very helpful as we go back now to Zechariah and think, what is he anticipating here in verses 11 through 17? Okay, so the the joy, the hope of this chapter is not just that God is going to defeat Israel's enemies. It's not just that God's going to give them a powerful king and stable peace. There's more than that. Zechariah is showing us God making his people a part of his mission in the world. It's showing us how God is going to welcome them into his work. He is going to wield them as his instruments, his weapons. He is going to deploy them in his service as his representatives, his agents, as he works in the world through them for their good and for his glory. So God's people are not going to be passive bystanders just watching God do all these things. They are actually going to be God's bow, verse 13, for example. God's arrows, God's sword. God is going to wield them. On the one hand, it's God who is going to act for them. And that's true. Zechariah gives us kind of both perspectives here. He almost alternates them, right? On the one hand, God is acting for them purely by his power. It's God who is protecting them in a way that they can't do for themselves. He says, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit, verse 11. I will restore to you double what you've lost, verse 12. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds, verse 14. The Lord of hosts will protect them, verse 15. The Lord their God will save them, verse 16. These are things that God is going to do unilaterally, things he's going to do for his people that they cannot do for themselves. But then you look at all the ways that God's people are active in this section by God's grace, by God's power working in them and through them when he says, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, verse 13, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Where he says, they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. God's people are going to be engaged in this battle, but not using their own strength and their own resources. All of that comes from the Lord, but they are indeed entering into his sovereign work in the world and his unvanquishable victory. Now, I love the way that verses 16 and 17 end the chapter then when it says, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. It says, Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine. Uh, the new wine basically means uh, when the grapes have just been pressed from the harvest. This, this fresh um, kind of first fruit or first taste of that harvest. This is a picture of the, the general fruitfulness of the land, this abundant, overflowing harvest where there's plenty of everything so that everybody has plenty to eat and drink. There's no lack, no hunger. It's yet another aspect of this peace and security that God is promising to bring. And so God's people then are going to shine. They're going to shine. This blessing they're going to experience is going to be This evidence of God's care and protection for them. This salvation and the security that they have in him. 
And it all traces back, doesn't it, to that king in verses 9 and 10. This is the person the Lord is going to provide. It's through him that this peace is going to come. It's through him that this security is going to be established, not just for Israel, but for the world. So what I want us to see tonight, it'd be easy to read Zechariah 9 and just be like, oh, isn't that neat? That's that text that, that Matthew and John quote. This is the, that's the chapter that's about the triumphal entry, and just stop there. But what I want you to see here is that the triumphal entry was just the beginning of the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. That was just the alpha point of Zechariah 9 coming to fruition in the life of the people of God. We've got to connect in our minds that part of the gospel history with the last part of the gospel of Matthew, the end of the gospel of Matthew, where after the resurrection, the risen Lord Jesus, now victorious over sin and death, he tells his disciples, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's already settled in one sense. Jesus' reign has begun already from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. But then what does he tell them? Go, therefore. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. What he's doing is he is inviting and commanding his people, in fact, to enter into his work in the world. He's, he's calling them to be his arrows shot out into the world to bring the message of his saving reign to those people of all the nations that need to hear it. But of course, it's not there in the Great Commission. It's not um, through the disciples' power, the disciples' resources that that kingdom is going to come, is it? No, it's only through his, as he ends that Great Commission with the promise of his presence when he says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's how you're going to get this job done, because I'm with you. And he's going to carry that work out all the way until the end, when, by the way, I want you to get the idea that the picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey in peace is the only image we get of Jesus in the scriptures. If you're impressed by that mental image of Alexander the Great riding his charger Bucephalus, just wait till you get to the book of Revelation and you see the Lord Jesus Christ at the last day riding on a white horse with his own robe dipped in the blood of his enemies. A conquering king, a conquering hero. That is the end of the story of the history of this world and the end of the story of Jesus and his people on the verge of eternity, a total victory and conquest of all things. And that is good news for the people of God, but it is to be seen as complementary with this picture, the Jesus of the triumphal entry, the Jesus coming in Jerusalem in peace, preparing to suffer and die for his people preparing to do what was necessary to set us free from the waterless pit of our sin and the judgment that it deserves. Jesus has saved us as the flock of his people. He's righteous in having salvation. And so now, in the interim, 
the interim between the triumphal entry on the donkey and that picture in Revelation of Jesus on the white horse. As we live in between those times, Lord Jesus is calling us now to assemble and to march forth confident in his victory, confident in his reign, and recognizing he is intending to wield us as his bow, as his arrows, as his sword, and have confidence that it is ultimately his strength, his protection, his security we depend on. How great is his goodness. How great is his beauty. That he would do that he would not only do all of this for us when we didn't deserve it, but that he would actually make us part of his work in the world. What an amazing privilege. That is good news for God's people. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this foreshadowing that you gave near the end of the Old Covenant times of what the coming of Jesus would be like. This picture of your judgment on the world in general, but the salvation that you had in store for your people. Our God, now that salvation has come. We're thankful for this privilege of being part of the people of God, carrying out by your grace and power the mission Jesus has given to us in the world. We pray that you would please make us the instruments of spreading his rule, not through conquest, but in the likeness of our Savior, in peace. Spreading the message of peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The free and full forgiveness of sins as that door of salvation has been thrown open wide for all who will listen now. until he comes. Help us to listen. Help us to embrace this promise in faith, to experience this peace with you that Jesus came to bring. And help us to share it with others, Lord, boldly and energetically, for the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.